Yes. Have you ever heard of a band from Australia called The Scientists? Or uh, like a guy named Kim Salmon? I don't believe so. They made like a lot of really interesting kind of experimental rock music in the like late 70s or 80s. And, um, and then I guess Kim Salmon had a whole bunch of other projects and huh. still active. Huh. Um, but you know that guy, Jack Hobegger? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like Jack Hobegger's Celebrity Telethon? Yeah. Uh, so this week on Low Profile, I'm taking a week off. And I'm just airing an episode of his radio show. Okay. Instead, because it's kind of a similar format. But instead of playing like clips interspersed, he just plays entire songs. Okay. Like back, like maybe a couple songs back to back, and, and then, then they like, pick up the conversation and talk talks. about that oh, yeah. era. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I'm recording the intro to it right now. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. I like that. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna play the show. Awesome. Are you gonna listen? At five. Four o'clock. Four o'clock. Four o'clock to five. I don't know. But if, I, you can listen anytime. I, I should be uh, at a radio at that time, and I'll tune in. All right. Or, or at least via the internet or something. But I should be able to pick up at a radio downtown. Yeah. Cool. All right. I'm going to roll it now. You're listening to Chaos 89.3 FM Olympia, Washington. Uh, I'm Jack Habegger, and this is Celebrity Telethon. Uh, we've got a special guest this week. We've got Kim Salmon from the legendary Australian group The Scientists and The Surrealists and a number of other bands joining us uh, to talk about uh, just a few choice cuts from his career. Uh, Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Jack, my pleasure. How about that? Um, you're calling me a celebrity. <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, there's a... Yeah, there's a there's a whole lot that I want to get through. So I think uh, we'll jump into the music here. Uh, and I'm thinking I'm structuring things chronologically uh, okay. at, at the at the start. And then we kind of deviate from it later in the set. But I'm starting here with a cheap, nasty song, which I know isn't your first band, but is an early uh, an early entry in your discography. Um, and I'm going to play cheap and nasty which i thought a perfect song uh to 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 kick off the cheap nasties section of the program uh do you have any background uh that you'd like to give for this song or this track in particular oh um it's one of those songs that i i I was i had the name of the band the cheap nasties Mm -hmm. when i found out about this um concept of punk rock and I didn't even know what punk rock was. I just read about CBGBs in this amazing scene and thought, right, that's for me. What 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 is punk rock? I hadn't heard any of it, so I went on a, a quest to find punk rock, and various things came through because this was before anybody was like the Ramones was recorded. So I came upon the modern lovers and the stooges and the velvet underground and the new york dolls and um then um i think i kind of concocted my idea of what punk might be and in my head there was a sort of uh, i sort of had this idea that maybe 
ACDC, Australia's ACDC, who weren't very well known at the, well, they were big, they, were, they had hits in Australia, but they certainly weren't the international thing they are now. I thought they might have been punk, kind of aligned with a punk rock kind of philosophy in, in ways. And I sort of made a, a riff that was, that was because the, the song was a collaboration between me and the other guitar player, Neil Fernandez. And really what I had was this, that riff of sort of a power riff that was kind of like an ACDC riff, but it had a bit of a chug, chug a lug guitar thing. That's more of a punk thing that I'd somehow managed to glean out of the Stooges records and things that I heard. So it had that and um, a few guitar licks that I thought might work. And I didn't really have a um, set of lyrics. Dave Faulkner, who was um, in the Cheek Nasties for a, an entire week and, and never really actually did anything in the band at all. Um, it was way before we ever played. He, um, he joined and quit after a week after um, we took a, the Ramones album that I just bought and taken took it to a party and a whole pile of um, theatre students that he didn't like were dancing to it. So he decided punk rock wasn't for him anymore. <laughs> so, um, but he's, you know, obviously he found his way back. Right. Um, but but um, he wrote some lyrics and he said, this is like, you know, your theme song. And that was his idea of a punk rock thing. So his was like real sort of dirty kind of, you know, the lyrics are disgusting. <laughs> right. So there was those things. And Neil Fernandez had a kind of a three chord chorus there that was a lot more sort of, that was the catchy, that, the catchy chorus. So um, it was really like we had a mission statement to make a punk rock song that was for the band and, we just sort of um, engineered it, really. It was mm -hmm. it was like that. Swampland, when, a few years later, I wrote it in very much the same way. It was, um, although I wrote all the music and a lot of the chorus, it was very much, I need this, we need a bit of this, we need some certain amount of that. It wasn't like done in that intuitive, um, inspired way that people like to think all songs are written. Right. The rest of mine are written. <laughs> <laughs> Well, why don't we play Cheap and Nasty? And since you mentioned Swampland, why don't we have Swampland coming up right after that? Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll have those side by side. I'll bump it up. Okay. All right. This is Cheap Nasties with Cheap and Nasty.
You just heard The Scientists with Swampland coming up after Cheap Nasties with Cheap and Nasty. Uh, we have Kim Salmon joining us today. Uh, Kim, you were talking before about how uh, the song Cheap and Nasty and the song Swampland have some similarities, but uh, Swampland has definitely taken on quite the uh, life of its own and is certainly a, a, a well-known song of yours. Could you talk a little bit about that? Certainly. Well, um, for a start, <laughs> there were swamps around where I grew up. So the idea of Swampland sort of appealed to me anyway. I sort of spent a lot of time as a child catching tadpoles and uh, um, and little crustacean sort of um, lobstery things mm -hmm. that we call jilgies, but um, over in the east of Australia, they call them yabbies, but you probably call them, I don't know, no, swamp lobsters or crawfish in the states. Yeah, right. Uh -huh. So, so when um, I don't know, there's something about that that um, with the scientists, you probably, you, I'm sure you know that we had a sort of a pop kind of a phase when we started, a kind of pop punk kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and um, when eventually we regrouped on the other side of the country. And there wasn't me and the drummer who used to write the lyrics for the scientists. There's another whole other story. Right. He'd, he'd write the a drummer who wrote the lyrics and um, we didn't have a drummer to write lyrics for us anymore. So I had to write lyrics and I wrote the sort of things that I could write about. It wasn't because of my childhood in the swamps. It was because of the whole cramps, primitive sort of primal rock and roll, which is what the scientists I thought were meant to be in the first place, because that's why we've got this ironic name, was right. to sort of, you know, to be primitive and caveman-like, mm -hmm. like the trogs, according to James. But um, anyway, we sort of went into this pop direction because that was the way we wrote together. We'd write, he'd write some words and it seemed to work. So you don't sort of go against something that comes naturally to you. So that was the intuitive songwriting Go in, no, no, no analytical process in it whatsoever. It was just the way we did it. And, um, but there we are in Sydney instead of Perth. We regrouped, other side of the country, new drummer. Um, I had um, basically, I, yeah, same kind of idea of a mission statement. And it was sort of, I wanted to have, yeah, not just nine parts water, one part sand, but I wanted to have a bit of rockabilly a bit of um, punk, sort of an urban punk mixed with the kind of swampiness. Um, I wanted to have some jagged guitar, sort of a la television. Mm -hmm. And also, um, if you kind of listen to Swampland and put it next to another cheap, nasty song, Hit and Run, um, the, the guitar approach to that sort of two twin guitar solo Mm -hmm. It's very, you can hear how it's sort of one of the, from the more dissonant end of a, the television kind of spectrum. And it's also sort of, they're quite similar. The Swampland one is works in the same way. It was really like, like I had, I took that with me. I thought that was one of the, my favourite parts of the Cheap Nasties was that right. little bit of playing there and the, the, the soundscape that it and what it evoked. So I took that and I think what I had, I, there was a, I thought, well, we need something like a, a Donny Kid riff, so I put that in there. Mm -hmm. And I, I had a chorus, and um, a friend um, who uh, I um, who played bass with me for a bit, he um, 
he was good with words and I said, can you write me some lyrics to this? I've got a chorus that goes in my heart as a place called Swampland. And he came up with nine parts water, one part sand and all these verses. And I thought for the verse, naturally enough, something in E because E's the kind of that swampy kind of key. And I just sort of thought chugging along like that would be the, the thing to have. It was mm -hmm. a bit punk, a bit swamp. And um, yeah, I just sort of had a kind of a vocal for that, that I thought it'd be nice if it kind of went up like Roy Orbison would do, you know? How yeah, I hear that for sure. That I wanted that. So it was really like a whole lot of ingredients. Yeah. So, so sometimes it's okay to work to a formula. I mean, I tend not to like formulas despite my band's name. But, <laughs> um, it's uh, it, it, it sort of was done that way. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a good segue into you were talking about some of uh, your other uh, forms of songwriting. And I feel like High Noon is uh, a pretty different sounding song than yeah. Swampland. Uh, and yeah. you were talking about that briefly about how there's been some different approaches that the scientists have taken throughout the years. Um, yeah. So I have in this next block, I have High Noon going into when fate deals its mortal blow, which are in my mind are uh, very different ends of the, the spectrum for uh, scientists. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, the progression there. Yeah, well, of course, high noon is from the earlier phase mm -hmm. when we were sort of like, it's marked by geography a little bit. We, we were in Perth then and uh, we disbanded because Perth, wasn't interested in a band like the scientists enough to sustain us there was some interest but it was it, it just didn't really happen for us we, we we'd made trips to the east many times or well a couple of times mm -hmm. and actually did well it was sort of like we actually created a little bit of a stir there and mm -hmm. we'd come back to perth and then suddenly it was like it all died again so we decided to give up um but before we did one of the songs was this song written by, with the lyrics written by the bass player, Ian Sharples. And he um, was, uh, he was a little bit more literary in his approach than James Baker. James, his, his approach to songwriting was sort of like, um, well, what would Reg Presley say? Or what would, uh, you know, it'd be sort of very much like a pastiche of kind of 60s things Okay. Yeah. Um, but 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 in a in a sort of a postmodern way, uh -huh. it was sort of you know a bit more simplified. So our, our thing was like, well, we had a song called it never got recorded called Pretty Girl. So we thought, well, yeah, let's also have a song called Girl and another song called um, That Girl, and then there's a song called Kinda Girl. So it was sort of like James went on this tangent of having songs with girl in the title. And they'd be, they were very primitive, really, you know. It's, uh -huh. girl, I want you now. Girl, come on now. Girl. It, was, it was wantonly primitive and dumb. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, you, I think um, he, he, he was really good and fantastic with that, but I think he, he had a sort of a finite bunch of songs that he could write, really. Mm -hmm. He'd already written a lot of his punk songs in The Victims before The Scientists. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think we were, re 
we're nearing the end. And I think Ian sort of was able to add another dimension in songwriting. And his it was the same thing, the same kind of themes, but he, he was coming at it from a more literary perspective. So High Noon was, uh, you know, um, I think he might have been dumped by his girlfriend. So he, but he wrote about, you know, like out of a, out of a Western. It was so there was sort of like a story to it, a narrative. And uh -huh. I liked the fact that he was able to do that. And I, I love that bit of music and it's all, I just chucked all my best Johnny Thunders licks into it. So, but I kind of have realized that looking back at Johnny Thunders, who was a, an icon and fantastic and, you know, always will be for me, but I think really, I think Walter Lewis was always the better guitarist. <laughs> I was probably a lot closer as a guitar player, I'm not saying, I was probably a lot closer to Walter Lewis in the guitar playing, I'm not saying I'm, lots better but i just i think really johnny thunders was sort of very basic and uh, you know yeah but, but i what, what i thought were johnny thunders licks i put my best ones in there and did everything mm -hmm. like that and had a real i was very happy with the melody and i really think the song's really quite something so um that's sort of um where the scientists ended up in that perth thing it was um in that phase and that phase um, is is very early 80s. Yeah, it's right? um it's really seven, 1978 to 1980. Okay. Really, mm -hmm. even though the pink album that High Noon comes from, or the mm -hmm. self-titled scientist album comes from, is actually was issued in 1981. I just found out recently, but I, I couldn't remember. I, if you'd have asked me, I'd have said, "Oh, that's from 1980." Uh -huh. But um, in actual, because we recorded it right at the start of the year, and it was, so, and that was released after you, that incarnation had broken up, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Quite a while after. So, really, we, yeah, we, we had a, a real lot of. We've written a heap of songs. It was like um, there's there's loads that we didn't record, and um, there was loads that we um, actually didn't bother to finish with oh we got another song we got another song and we just scrap them left right and center actually um so um because uh I, we believed in even though you might not see it we believed in quality strict quality control <laughs> you know yeah we know that that song doesn't cut it that one doesn't cut it we're really yeah. we're, we're pretty harsh on ourselves with that stuff so mm -hmm. um only a few actually made it through, but there was still a lot more than we ever recorded. Right, right. Well, let's take a listen to High Noon, and then we'll go into When Fate Deals Its Mortal Blow, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Okay. Cool. So this is The Scientist with High Noon. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
seven o'clock, my hands are steady. I'm drinking rye, cleaning my gun. Though I know this town's against me. I know I'm right, so I won't run. I know, because I'm lying. Big enough for the both of us. Somebody's gotta go. Model blow. 
scientists with when fate deals its mortal blow and before that was high noon uh if you're just joining us we're here with kim salmon who uh i'm talking to about some of his uh great tracks from his long career uh we just talked about high noon and some of the uh earlier incarnation of uh scientists and now we're moving into sort of the next the next phase with when fate deals its mortal blow and kim i was wondering if you could talk a little bit uh about how uh how this progression kind of changed your sound sonically. Yeah, actually just interesting when you said, when you announced us, you said scientists, which is sort of correct, but there's a little bit of a distinction. If you look at the stuff from Perth, it has the, has the definite oh. article. Ah. Yeah. Whereas you see us in, we, we took, we did that Ramones thing and dropped the definite article. Took it up. So nobody's, that, ever, picked, nobody's ever picked that up. <laughs> so that's right that's when that happens between the pink out yeah, after yeah, pink yeah. album there's no bar now people after this post this interview we'll, we'll have broken it wide open we'll know now yeah yeah that's <laughs> breaking news <laughs> <laughs> it is you watch how things change <laughs> um and when fate deals its mortal blow nice mm -hmm. segue um gosh um well, it's an E, a kind of a bluesy thing, really, in E, and it's, um, um, I don't know. I, I, I was really at the early phase of my lyric writing at that point. And um, in some ways, I think it was like, it was what I, I didn't want to put, I didn't want to go beyond what I was capable of. And mm -hmm. kind of it was good because these songs are really quiet. They don't, uh, they, there's a lot of mystery in them and they don't really, I don't, I don't fuck up <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that word. Um, I um, really, uh, I think set it on fire and um, we had love. I, I look back at those lyrics and think, oh God, I, just because I was so, and even Fire Escape, you know, they sort of, um, they say something, they don't, it's not, it's, it's kind of mysterious, but they definitely got, got something it's quite poetic but it was like they were really um i was really careful then because i i didn't i didn't have a history of being a, a, um you know a a, a a lyric writer I, uh -huh. um, there's there's definitely a big distinction between high noon lyrically and when fate deals its mortal blow we're definitely getting a lot more abstract yeah um, and I think that that's sort of a motif that continues through this next phase of scientists. I think I got better at it, but I think those early ones are good because they sort of are so sparse and they, um, I don't know, there's something about them. I, I, I worked, I, it wasn't, it didn't come naturally to me. So I worked really hard at it and I thought, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I wasn't doing big long narratives for sure it wasn't like nick cave or something well i don't think he was doing big long narratives then either but um it wasn't like that um it was mm -hmm. something it was like a bit of maybe there was a bit of stooges and a bit of velvets and a bit of but coming more from that angle and 
the pop sort of side of things and uh, I uh, maybe a bit of blues too um, with that sort of no given that sonically and um, you know the way the songs were there was a lot a lot of kind of blues in it in, in, in that scientist's incarnation mm -hmm. so um, it was that time wasn't it it was uh, club and um, well, the birthday party, all those things kind of got that sort of different versions of the same ingredients in it, really. So right. The cramps, cramps was very big on my radar. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, uh, Gun Club, Stooges, Television, you're naming a lot of bands that are uh, are yeah. certainly very common on this show. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely the world that uh, that I operate in for this show. Yeah, I guess uh, I'm, not, I'm no different. <laughs> but, but everybody's unique. They've got their own blend. Yeah, right. So taking a bit of a, we're going to take a bit of a detour out of scientists um, for a, a, a little bit of time here uh, and talk a little bit about your solo career and your work with Surrealists and uh, a song that I really enjoy from the first Surrealist record is Intense. And I noticed in your, um, in the biography section on your Bandcamp page for this record, that it singles out feel and intense as being sort of more influenced by like Alan Vega and suicide. Uh, and I can hear that in scientists, especially in that next incarnation too. And I was wondering how, uh, sci how scientists and suicide and, and your solo career kind of fit together. Yeah, well, there's definitely a, um... I borrowed a few things off Alan Vega <laughs> and Martin Rip. Uh, I really loved once I heard them. It it, um, it was saying something in a way that I could relate to because I come from an art background actually, and um, so and, and suicide really were coming from an art perspective. It was um, motif driven and it was sort of conceptual and. Mm -hmm. um, it was like they'd gotten a rock and roll idea, what, what rock and roll was, and kind of turned it into some kind of modern art. They've stripped it back into so far back into absolute minimalism and completely recontextualized it. But they're singing these things about comic book heroes, and but it's also about an American dream, but kind of also it's the other side of it. It's it's very um, cleverly done what suicide did and once i heard it you know once i heard that first album with just that driving beat on um uh, ghost rider and um you know they just it was it was electronic but it was kind of like a boogie you know it was sort of like, right but you wouldn't you wouldn't pick that you know it was like it was so many things all at once without with having very few ingredients in it but it was sort of what was between the lines with suicide that was really where it was all happening and and places they were, they could go and did go. So um, once I heard that, I thought, well, okay, they've kind of got rock and roll and, and taken it to this new place. I could take it somewhere else, back into the same old rock and roll instrumentation. But where having been it there, you know, it, it so it was sort of like take it another to another direction in a different in a different way. So it it was sort of. Um, that, that's sort of where the suicide thing comes from. Um, and I don't know, I think when we did Human Jukebox, for instance, that was sort of 
took it to another level. It's not yeah. something that people really. So when they think of the scientists, they probably think of weird love and um, all that sort of stuff. But human jukebox is like to me that next level, and it's sort of like it's right at the end phase of the scientists from the early days and right um, or the eighties, and really the surrealists at that on that first album is it's. I don't want to be like Mark E. Smith and saying if, if it's my, you know, me and my granny playing bongos, it's the scientists. Right. But in a way, I'm doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, it's... Um, it's continuing that deconstruction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deconstruction was huge for me. It was very much that, you know, Panther Burns, that, they were probably the big ones for me, actually. Was Panther, yeah. But I loved them more than anything because... When I heard Brazil and um, the way he sang that, and just the way these songs, Alex Chilton and as well, you know, with um, like oh yeah, and that that was really the thing. The anarchy of all of that was probably the bigger influence out of any of those things. And uh, and like you were saying before, it's sort of the same kind of building blocks uh, and everyone's interpretations of you know Panther Burns, Cramps, Gun Club. A lot of these bands are taking and suicide are taking these kind of rockabilly blues based back to roots, even some honky tonk stuff and and really cranking up that intensity. And I think that you you really hear that on both Human Jukebox and this first Surrealist record. I think the thing about it is it's is because it's um, I think Charles Shah Murray said in this article about CBGBs, you know, anybody that fell in love with rock and roll for the first time for the right reasons, obviously that's, you know, that's, he's putting something on it there, but it's sort of rock and roll. There's something about rock and roll that, you know, when you first hear it, I suppose when you hear about anything that inspires you, but it's going back to that point of inspiration and, it's not that you want to go back in time and be retro. It's not right. to agree with that. It's those things. It's those going back to the raw ingredients and trying to do it yourself in your way and and reinvent something. So that's what was going on with my in my head and in my world back then. And intense was this song that um, I don't know. I was just wandering around the streets of Notting Hill Gate and knowing that the scientists were probably not going to last. And I just, but I, I had this song in my head. It just, it was really was, I just imagined it. I just imagined mm -hmm. this would be kind of cool, a cool song. And it was <laughs> nothing more than that, really. I, I had it and never really did anything with it until the Surrealists. And I just sort of said, I want this and this. I was with Brian Hooper and, I sort of had to, I was back in Perth. I found myself back in Perth and sort of um, almost uh, ready to despair and give up. <laughs> I was back in Perth because of a, a strange windfall. We got offered a lot of money to vacate our premises in Notting Hill Gate and thought, well, with this sort of money, we can't even relocate ourselves very easily we, you know it'd probably be easier just to go fly back to Perth and buy a house which we did right so that's that was it it was a um yeah it was it was some prime real estate we lived in I think um the royal children lived in that street had a crash there so oh, wow. it was, uh, <laughs> uh, that's what uh, happened so 
I was back in Perth and thinking, what have I done? What have I done? I'm back in Perth. Right. <laughs> I've heard about it before. <laughs> what am I going to do? Oh, well, I'll try and start a band with um, one of my old friends, and I did. It was Brian, who he was a troublemaker that I knew, punk rocker, and mm -hmm. uh, he um, who looked cool. <laughs> That's important. Yeah, but I thought that he'd actually. Yeah, I thought he'd be a, he'd be a good candidate, and I in, tried to indoctrinate him, and I think I succeeded. But uh, he had his own ideas about rock and punk anyway. So, but um, yeah, I just there's all these ideas that are on that first Surrealist album that, that I'd kind of communicated to him, and um, he, he he's I think he's got his name credited because he the baseline. I, I had this thing of a beat, this pounding beat, and a um, um, these strange dissonant chords, which are now I know to be diminished chords. <laughs> um, I, so um, I, I did those um, and um, had this song, and he put that ding 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 two note. It could have been a scientist bass line, right? It, following the chord progression that I gave him, so. Um, yeah, that was um, that was how that was written. But it was sort of about, oh, you know, it was about a couple of girls that I knew. <laughs> that it was, but I fancied that those lyrics were sort of had a touch of Jonathan Richmond about them, as much as they were were intense. There's a certain naivety. Yeah, yeah, I could hear that. That's sort of a uh, belonging. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was just like this. It's intense, but I kind of and I kind of can hardly deal with it. But I'm outside of it, and I don't mm -hmm. understand. Like hospital or something. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's take a listen to it. This is Kim Salmon and the Surrealists with Intense. The world would seem. Looking through her eyes is not the world of you or I. She was in tears. Sometimes repel. You could find yourself living in your private 
just heard Intense by Kim Salmon and the Surrealists. We are, once again, if you're just joining us, joined by Kim Salmon himself. We're talking about uh, a lot of songs from his discography. Now, this next chunk of songs, uh, I picked a couple covers that you've done. Uh, First of which being Devil in Disguise, and then uh, Everybody's Out of Town from uh, your your newest uh, release under your own name. I was wondering, how do you choose songs to cover and uh, how do you decide your approach? Because I think both of these approach the originals in very different ways. Well, um, have, what are, everything with everything I've said about the surrealists and the scientists, one of the big things that I came up with for myself is that I believe everything, every performance anybody ever does is a, sal- is a salvage job. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything ever goes really strictly according to plan. Even uh-huh. you know, there's always on the on the score that the composer wrote room for some interpretation. Somebody's salvaging something. Somebody's kind of not getting it and trying to make the best out of it and throwing things together. The world's most accomplished, respected conductor is doing that. The, the players are trying to interpret what he's saying. There's there's an element of salvage. So, but but you know, to where I do it, it's a lot more obvious. And I um, kind of think that that's what every I, I go knowingly into a performance, knowing that it's never going to be as intended. But there's always going to be something that you missed anyway. So I think it's those things in the cracks that, you know, if you can recognize what's going on in the moment, the spontaneity, I think there's some really great things and it's sort of um, really, um, I try to, I try for them almost. I don't set them up, but I, it's, it's sort of what those things are about for me. So um, Devil in Disguise, I, I, I went in, um, to that first Surrealist recording session. And there were songs that I didn't let Brian or Tony really know how to play. So I'd say, oh, we're doing this Elvis song now. So um, Blue Velvet, you know, it kind of goes like this. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and it hit me with the surreal feel. The song was definitely like that. I sort of tried to explain to the drummer, Tony, what 7-4 timing meant. And right. I don't know if I, got it across to him but that was just us the band there 
grappling with my ideas, trying to salvage them. I'd set the situation up. This is what how I wanted it. I wanted the songs to be kind of not broken down, deconstructed, and the assemblage and the salvage that is occurring in that is sort of like it's it's you get to hear and feel the music being created and I think that's what I was after is to sort of have a spontaneous creation. Um like jazz. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's coming from that sort of place. It's not jazz, definitely not. But uh -huh. it's, it's from that. It, it, it does have an improvised thing because I think that that's what's happening. And the scientists definitely had that. And it was acknowledged that we were sort of an improvisatory band in in that second phase. Right. Got off, cottoned on to it. It's just like, because, you know, it was some, that's what we, we, that was the joy of our music, really. We, we reveled in never doing anything the same it was just part of what we we loved being you know coming right. up with something new every time we played so um it was just a, a a more savvy approach to that we realized it was harnessing that whole um aspect of um, making music that so um that's what uh, is happening and with um, everybody's out of town the um, uh, I did it like when I just recorded it last year, didn't I? So yeah, it was at least uh, it, came, it just came out last summer, right? Or, yeah, yeah. So that's I was, you know, yeah, yeah. So what happened was, you know, pandemic. We're we're sort of all in lockdown, and you can't walk any further than maybe uh, you know um, your suburb, and you got one half hour, an hour, an hour long walk you're allowed to do. And I was sort of like going for a walk every day and just looking around. And I, I, I took lots of photographs of the stranger things that I'd never noticed in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And um, I remembered this song from Burt Bacharach, Hell David, that BJ Thomas did. And, uh, and it, just, it just used to pop in my head. I, I always loved it. It was before pan the pandemic, I imagined a neutron bomb had hit and there was nothing left and he chanced upon the fact that a post-apocalypse world where everything was left intact, but there was nobody around anymore. What's going on? I always liked that song. And um, that's the way I used to feel walking the streets of Northcote, where I live. <laughs> sort of think, hey, everybody's out of town. And it felt sort of chipper because I was quite... I sort of enjoyed it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, what do you do? You've got to make the best of it. So um, I just learned that song. I just kind of learned how to play it. I thought, oh, I really love this song now. It really means something to me now. Yeah. And um, I'd um, thought I'd, I'd successfully recorded a Surrealist album live on a live stream, you know, where. Um, um, Rantings from the Book of Swamp, and that was really made up. We did make it up on the spot, right? And I thought that, um, and and I'd, a, a pressing plant had opened up, a new pressing plant. They'd opened up. They, they, they bad planning, but for them. But um, I chose to give my stimulus package money to them because I thought, well, I think that's a worthy place to put it. You know, and I like those guys, and um, the, in that plant. They, they had good intentions. So I thought, well, I could continue on this theme and um, 
put some more records out with the money that I'm being given. So it was my way of putting the money into art rather than, right. you know, and uh, I thought that was my statement. So I thought, well, I'll go, there's a studio. My friend has a studio and he, he lives up the road from the pressing plant. Wouldn't it be funny? You know, I could sort of keep everything in this little point, even though technically it's gone to wherever the cloud is, which is right. wherever Dropbox is. So in, in some desert in Texas or something, God knows, but it's gone around the corner via that desert in Texas. <laughs> so I, I, I went into um, this studio and just with, with um, a couple of songs, I just thought I might as well give it a go. It was just for something to do. So I thought I'd, um, I'd, uh, I had not that much idea. I, I went in there and I just, um, started on my acoustic guitar and um, played some drums and some fuzz bass and thought, well, slide trombone, slide guitar. <laughs> so I, I really just made it up then. I mean, I, the arrangement, it was, it all, it sort of follows the Bacharach thing. It's attempts uh. to do that, but it's, it is, you know, it's heavily deconstructed. Right. So that, that's, that's where that comes from. Well, let's take a listen to both of these covers. So up first, this is Kim Salmon and the Surrealists with Devil in Disguise. The United States makes up only 5% of the world's population. 
and yet holds 25% of the world's prisoners. Prison can be traumatizing with negative long-term effects. Olympia Books to Prisoners works to offset these dehumanizing effects of incarceration. Since the 1970s, Books to Prisoners is volunteer-operated and receives more than a thousand book requests each month. Sending books is one way to show solidarity and promote education. Access to books can increase a person's ability to succeed after prison. You can help support prisoner literacy and promote social justice by volunteering with Olympia Books to Prisoners today. For more information, visit olympiabtp.org or email olibtp at gmail.com. Listening to KAOS 89.3 FM Olympia, Washington. You just heard a couple of covers from Kim Salmon. That was Everybody's Out of Town off of his newest solo release. And uh, we are now, so that we've kind of taken a break from scientist stuff. And um, 
kind of gone out of order to in the chronological line. Um, and so now uh, I want to do a, sort of another thing, a, a theme that we've been kind of doing, which is early, late, early to late period scientist comparisons. So I've got another, another uh, couple of those coming up. So a uh, couple of L songs. So first I want to play Last Night, and then we'll go into Lead Foot. Uh -huh. and, uh, we can uh, sort of see the differences there. Is there, a, is there a story behind Last Night? Lyrics from James. Um, I, well, there's a story in that um, I, I thought I'd, you know, um, we knew what sort of sound we had by that stage. It was a little bit, you know, a year into the band. Um, we recorded Frantic Romantic already, I think. I um, had um, this riff that I figured, sound, figured sounded like Badfinger. Cool, yes. Another, another, uh, another band not, that's no stranger to this show. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so I, I had this riff there. I just... I don't know. I, I, just the riff, just the opening riff. I didn't have any more. I played it to James and he kind of came up with those lyrics. It was as simple as that. And in, in, his, in his tone deaf voice, he's saying, last night you told me that you loved me. And that went with the riff. And then um, once he started singing it, all the other bits followed. He sort of saying, never thought, he thought of another bit. And then I played the music to it and there's chords I love the way the chord um, the sort of power chords fell into place under it the little jangle chords I don't know if they're power chords or jangly right sort of hard to, <laughs> um, but um, yeah there was sort of a lot of things and we kind of uh, thought we needed a middle eight we were experimenting with this idea of a middle eight you know I hardly knew how to write a song up until then and um, it seemed like it needed another bit. That's when, whenever you think you need another bit and you only do it once. So there's that, um, you know, 24 hours on, it's a different song bit. And um, um, yeah, it was just, uh, it was a pastiche, but we, but because the scientists did it, it it doesn't sound like bad finger. <laughs> it's it's garage rock all the way, really. Um, I don't. I think that power pop tag doesn't really fit that early scientist very well. It's a bad fit. Yeah. It's um, it's because I think garage rock, which was probably wasn't a term then, definitely fits us better. It's yeah. A better, better fit. Um, but you know. People didn't know about it. They, they, it was, it was rough and ready, but it had all this power, this, this pop sort of stuff. You know, it was like it's melodic, but it's kind of brutal. Yeah, so, uh, it, you mentioned earlier the jangle, and I think that that's an interesting thing about the early scientist stuff, or the early the scientist stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, that really balances like the jangle and the stomp, kind yeah. of yeah. twin sort of approaches that. You know, when we go to a song like Lead Foot, which will be up next, is sort of a sort of the jangle is no longer uh, is no yeah, longer it's been, present. It's been eradicated. Yeah. yeah. With that first lineup, it was when we first got together because another aside is a side story or is when we first formed, we actually formed out of this band, The Invaders. 
Right. And what what really happened was uh, the cheap nasties disbanded and um, Roddy Radar, who it wasn't called that then, and Boris Sudovic took pity on me and let me join their band, but I wasn't allowed to play guitar because I'd always shown up Roddy. So... <laughs> You couldn't be Walter Lure against his uh, his thunders. Johnny thunders, I think. Yeah, I couldn't be that. He wasn't going to allow that. But um, when when um, James Baker became available as a drummer, um, he said he he agreed to join if I did play guitar. Right. And when we played, when we had our first jam, I could hear. I'd say to Rod, "Well, you," because I would even. In, in the invaders, I'd be telling Rod, play this and play this. I'd be giving him guitar lessons, really, and saying, uh -huh. do this and do that. And that's great, fantastic, you know. Here's, here's, a, here's a, a fifth chord. I point him in the direction, go that way. And he'd do it and off he'd go. And so <laughs> I sort of continued that once. So I started playing guitar. But I noticed with the two guitars playing together, I, thought, uh -huh. oh, I could hear something really new. Two guitars playing the same thing right. had a kind of a jangle to it that but a, a different sort of jangle to you know it's not like the birds right it's not like the searches it, it's sort of like our kind of jangle i could just hear it was just like a sound that i hadn't actually heard being in the same room with it so it maybe other bands had it but i heard something really really fantastic and uh, so we were trying to bring that out whatever that was you know so but we went into the studio with um, this name producer called Rick Curtin, and uh, he'd um, worked with Elvis Costello and Queen, and he'd worked with a Perth the the band the Cheap Nasties turned into after I wasn't with them anymore, mm -hmm. the Mannequins, and um, they he he'd had some success with them, but we. Um, got in the studio and it just didn't work. It was like, I had a, um, I was playing a, um, what was it? It was a um, Les Paul Jr. So they have those sort of bridges that you can never get it exactly in tune, but right. why bother? You know, if it's good enough for Keith Richards or right. Johnny Thunders, I didn't care. But he wasn't gonna let that, he was saying, I can still sounds out of tune, I'd be tuning it and I felt, Felt a bit demoralised. I, I felt like, well, surely I can play guitar. What, what's this guy telling me? I'm a useless musician. He he really was kind of laying on that musician standard of musicianship line. So we got rid of him pretty quick, mm -hmm. and got Chris Tuner. <laughs> His name is ironic in two ways because uh, my name being Salmon and the the issue about the tuning. Right. So, but he was the guy that produced the the. Um, frantic romantic single and he was just a friend of ours but he's a pretty cool muso and he actually was great for frantic romantic because um i i wasn't getting the sounds that i'd been hearing in my head this is my first time in a studio right and i was like oh, this isn't working and he took me said look it sounds great to me and he, he managed to make me convince me that it was okay so just to put aside all my preconceptions mm -hmm. To his ears, it was fantastic. He really did a great job, and he pretty much said the same. He didn't do much more than say, sounds great to me, <laughs> but we needed him to do it. Right. And he was enough of a muso to kind of not let anything go past that 
was didn't, shouldn't shouldn't you know right he, he he was the guy for the job so um chris did a great job as in my book so um that's it so that was the story of last night and we got um we we toured the east coast and somehow on the last leg of our trip we got to play on um national television on the this this country's biggest pop show countdown right and um it was at a time when you didn't have to have pluggers and um you know um whatever um there's a whole lot of you know a whole lot of people you need to get things to happen now right this this just happened it was like it was just uh, molly meldrum the guy that um essentially curated the show he he heard about us and he wanted us, he he had some idea what he wanted on the show and uh, i go back and look at that episode and think that there's us and blondie and there's all this rubbish there's this this other other bands that are trying to hitch their start of the new wave thing uh -huh. all of them failing miserably because they all look really they, they all look like fashion victims every single one of them right and there's the scientists and blondie that you kind of think at least these bands have an idea they've got they're kind of savvy they know what they're doing uh-huh kind of see that they're kind of coming from a similar place it's different completely you know what like they were slick pop but you could see that there's certain um yeah knowingness going on and you know out <laughs> of vision yeah they we at least knew what we're doing <laughs> but um so that's what i can see when i go back to that episode of countdown and all the other poor hapless fools sort of people, yeah. you know, with their with their guitars and their mullet haircuts and <laughs> and right. know, whatever it was they were wearing that week, you know. Right. So let's um, let's take a listen to last night, and uh, we'll come back after we uh, listen to Lead Foot too. Okay. So this is scientists with last, or this is the scientists with last night. Coming up next is Scientists with Leadfoot.
was lead foot by scientists if you're just joining us we're here with kim salmon we're talking about all of uh, the uh, great songs from scientists surrealists his solo career uh and we just listened to a track off of human jukebox uh which we've been talking about earlier in the show but um lead foot i think is another uh, great example of that real deconstructed sound 
Um, and there's, there's certainly a, there's quite a thick atmosphere that is all over Human Jukebox that I think is a, a really appealing sound. And you can hear it on that song and you can really hear a thick atmosphere that sort of permeates that record um, that is really heavy and, and really primal. And I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that and how you kind of achieved that sound in the studio, if that was part of your live, your live thing at the time and how that came about. Um, I need to, I don't know. I don't like correcting people. <laughs> what your take is good. It, it's from the um, CD, the, the um, Sympathy for the Record Industry. Yes. Comp. Right, right. It's from the, what is Human Jukebox 84? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's got years yeah. and, and it's just the name right. of that compilation. Yes, right. that's good. Because yeah. um, in actual fact, it was a song that I wrote well before that, but it was because I was telling that particular story and it seemed to fit in and right. Well um, then, so yeah, yeah. So that, that sort of era, yeah. that time that kind oh, of it's, it's not wrong at all. You totally, totally, I, I went out of my way to create that impression and it was because I believed it to be, that's where I was coming from anyway. Right. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, um, the historians will say, no, this was then and this didn't happen till you know, the right, right. revisionist, but I'm just curating. Uh, mm -hmm. I was curating for Long Gone John for that one. So, um, who, uh, who is an Olympia local? So, uh, he, yeah, might, he might catch this. Yeah. Well, hi, John. <laughs> Shout out to you. You're a legend. <laughs> um, listen, I, I, um, I, they, what I was, um, coming at with the music was it was really like you got two notes in the main motif, just it's really basic. And I found very um, soon after Blood Red River, we'd, we'd done that, that you couldn't keep doing that same, those same two notes without pulling some trickery with the rhythms. Right. And, but you couldn't do it in a way that was obvious. Right. So time, different time signatures were, was a real good way of doing it. But if you could do it, so that's in seven, four timing, right? Uh -huh. um, but. Well, maybe it's seven, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yep. It's, I think it's seven, eight. I, 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 look, I'm not, even though I, I actually teach music, but I, I'm self-taught. So I could be um, mixed up on this one. It's either seven, four or seven, eight. But the point about it is it's in sevens. And um, um, that's how you kind of get it to sound a bit unique. Right. It, but it's a driving beat. It does actually sort of... So it's kind of like three and a half beats or something, or um, you know, it's sort of that's how you get the seven. It's it's like if a bar was three and a half beats long, it's like do 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 do. It's still a pulse, but right. it's not a, a regular pulse. It's kind of a slightly erratic a little stutter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that gives it its kind of rhythm, and um, I, which I was what well, that was deliberate and. Really, um, I started, it was probably around about 1983 when I started, that's when I wrote it. I, I, I was kind of beginning to get a bit more confident about writing lyrics and I think I thought a bit of a story and I, I, I was, uh, it was just from driving, night driving one time and um, a truckie coming up right behind us because as truckies sometimes do, they tend to, because 
you know, they've got a schedule. They, they can be a bit um, blasé about and, and intimidatory towards cars, you know. It's like, right. this, is our, this is for us. What are you doing on the road? There's a bit of that sometimes. And mm -hmm. it, he, he was bearing down on us, and it made me think of Jewel, that film with Dennis Weaver, you know, that one. Um, Duel, yes, the the Spielberg movie. I love that movie. Yeah, yes, yeah. It made me had so it was really just about. I just concocted up a story and thought that'd be kind of a cool story for this song. So that's where that's where Leadfoot comes from. It had the truck. The, the the truck had Leadfoot. Yeah. No, no. What am I saying? You know, it, it, it. That's right. The, the truck had Boss Hog. Uh huh. And I imagined him putting his foot. I, I just sort of thought he could sort of do something. He could sort of, uh, that's right. I could, that's right. So I'm getting really, I've forgotten what I was on about. I put, I could put my foot, I, I was, I, he was being a lead foot, but uh, I could kill us both by just put slamming the brakes on, you know, and creating right. disaster. He's going to be like that. It was just a scenario that I concocted in my head. And that's what the song is really. Um, and so um, you normally, if you're a lead foot, you're accelerating, but I, this has been just being the opposite. Right. So, um, that's what the song is. So it was just, you know. I love that there's a little bit of duel in there. I, I, that movie is terrifying. I, every time yeah. I do any kind of road trip, I think about that when I see it, when I see a, a big truck. Oof. Yeah. Well, I had plenty of that, you know, because we I, I've done that drive across the Nullarbor from Perth and back mm -hmm. uh, about seven times. Yeah. An uneven amount of times. And the number seven is significant because of the seven four timing of the song, but I just made you, that all up. There you go. Perfect tie-in. Well, uh, we're we're heading into the final uh set of songs here. And uh I thought we'd uh we'd talk a little bit about some newer collaborations that you've done, like the Darling Downs. Uh, I'd like to yeah. play in that jar. Oh um, yes. Which is from the first, that's from the first Darling Downs record, right? Yes. There have been three? Yes. Right. I mean, yeah, that, that's right. And, and that's a more, that's a more uh, country folk bluegrass kind of inspired project as opposed yeah. to the other stuff. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that a little bit and then we would close with a song from the New Scientist record, Moth Eaten oh. Velvet. Awesome. Well, um, thing about um, the Darling Downs is Ron and I are friends from way back. I even tell a story about him on John on, on the Sympathy Records um, liner notes for Blood Red River. And I think mm -hmm. he cracks the mention because we were, we were we were great friends from back then. Um, and um, but it used to get you know it used to be a bit of a script that. Um, after a sh I might have done a show when I'd gone up to Sydney in the Surrealists. I'd see Ron at the taxi club there. We'd both be trashed. And he'd say, oh, Kim, we've got to do something together. Let's make, we've got to make a country album. Let's do that, you know. And, um, but it was sort of like the, the stuff you talk when you're kind of after a gig. You, you, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, um, I thought nothing of it. And um, one day, Dave Faulkner, called me up and said, Kim, you know, Ron's down in uh, Melbourne now. He's settled down there. It's, he sort of, he, um, but he doesn't know anybody. Maybe you should go and, you know, have a coffee with him or, you know, just make, connect with him. And I thought, oh, yeah, 
And then I kind of thought, oh, yeah, what about that country album? <laughs> it was sort of like, and I rang him up and said, hey, how's it going? And uh, um, invited myself around to his place and we decided we would have a bit of a jam. Not, not with any pressure. We do it when we sort of, but we do it every couple of weeks. So every Friday night, every other Friday, I know we, how much of a life did we have to be out on a Friday night? Not out on a Friday night, but... So uh, none. So it was tragic. <laughs> but that tragedy was good fuel for our songwriting. Right. Um, so we, we I, I just took my acoustic guitar around to his place and we'd, um, and I noticed, as I suspected, I, I played a thing which became um, one of the songs on that album too. I just played this little picking thing that I had and he just sang a melody over it and we just taped it. And um, then we sort of, you know, mucked around and carried on and did, you know, we didn't really um, bother with it anymore. And then two weeks later, we did it again and we did a bunch of songs. I think we actually, we'd do about three songs that way. We didn't really bother to knock the songs into shape. We'd just sort of make this song up and, oh, that sounds pretty cool. We'll work yeah. on that later. You know, I'll see what happens. Um, we didn't even have a band plan or anything. It was just that's what happened. And then um, I got the offer to um, produce uh, Mac Shaw by the Hoodoo Gurus. And um, I sort of took up that offer. So I kind of left that behind. Right. And I, um, and I also had this strange project called Salmon, which was sort of like six guitars and two drummers and um just nothing but heavy riffs and no proper vocals but anyway so um i had that and i sort of um there's a few things i had on the go because i was actually just doing it for fun i'd given up on the idea of making a living out of music and i was i had a straight day job yeah but I'd do these things if they seem like fun and um that was but this was like a real job going and producing a Hoodoo Gurus album. So I did that for a while and came back and Ron said to me, I went back there and he said, oh, you know, we've got to um, do something with these. And I said, oh, we probably haven't got enough songs though. And he said, you're kidding. We've got about 20 songs. And he played this cassette back to back and I listened to it and I thought, it's exactly as it should be the way it is, I thought to myself. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, that's, that's really, we're ready to go out. We should just learn this stuff and go out there. And he thought I meant get a band together. And, and I, I meant, let's just, that is fantastic. Just that. That is, that is, that is perfect. I couldn't believe that we had all that stuff. Let's do that. I said, and, um, we ended up doing that and he'd, he'd written on the, um, on the cassette, K.R. Darling Downs, which is a brand of small goods. It's sort of ham and stuff, bacon. Uh-huh. For K.R. for Kim and Ron. It was, so, and that was all it was. And um, Ed Cooper had a gig and we got the support for that. Mm -hmm. And the booker said, what's the name of your band? And I said, oh, it's K.R. Darling Downs, because I didn't have any other name. 
And um, then we thought, well, actually, the Darling Downs is kind of nice. It's That's where the company was situated. It's a part of the um, Queensland heartland. It's a sort of a regional place. And it's quite, got quite a country link to it. In fact, mm. the um, head of the music faculty where I teach comes from the Darling Downs. So there you go. But um, it's... Um, it's just a region in Queensland, so um, um, yeah, but it just sounded like you know it's sort of got a double meaning to it. It was a cool name for a band. Yeah. So we went out there doing this show. I I had an acoustic guitar. I mean, I had not an acoustic, a nylon string acoustic guitar. Even mm -hmm. it didn't even have a proper pickup to it. It was mic'd up. It was like it was basic as, but um, that was supporting Ed Cooper, and that was our first show, and. Um, Somewhere along the line, we picked up the idea of wearing suits and um, um, it sort of gathered momentum, I think. But um, so, and we did three albums, but um, yeah, that, that's that's the story of the Dal. Oh, but the story of that song, In That Jar, I don't know, it's probably on the um, second or third um, session we had. Right. With Ron, when he wrote writes lyrics, um, he just sings stuff he uh, seems to think it's easier to make lyrics up on the spot than to actually learn them right so how he got that. And, that and rob younger is similar he's got that same idea they got they think that oh i'm so pathetic i can't you know be bothered writing lyrics i never can't get it together to write a set of lyrics and i'm thinking you guys are making up stuff on the spot how can you do that even if it's got to right. be good i wouldn't have the nerve right so how can you that's amazing you can do that so um yeah, so he he, so that if you listen carefully to the songs on the first album, real they're surreal. They're quite they're, they're, right. the lyrical content's quite surreal. It right. gets a little bit more. It's a bit of both on the second album. He started, you know, being a bit more conscious about. He, he thought, oh, I better get my act together. But he just right. he wouldn't. So we didn't ever really work at this. It just happened. Uh -huh. and, um, the third album, um, in the days when the world was wide, we did write lyrics and they're actually a collaboration between me and him, as indeed the music is a collaboration between me and him because right. um, people think, oh, I must write the music and he writes the lyrics. No, it's actually a sort of a bit of both. Um, That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he can, like, there's a song called um, Still Falls the Rain and there's a beautiful guitar riff. He wrote that. He can't play a guitar. He sang to me, I, I can hear a string quartet, I hear cellos, and he, he sang the cello line. Uh-huh. And, um, <laughs> and and I just played it. I just played what he did. And then he thought I wrote it. And I said, no, actually, that, that's you. I wrote the um, all the refrains the music, and those things, you know. And I would sort of, um, there'd be songs where he'd be singing a melody line that was really the bass line of what I was playing in the guitar, and he'd just sing that. So, so it was sort of a bit of both how 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 our stuff works. It wasn't just right. and the last album. He thought oh, I'm going to really work at these lyrics. I'm going to actually um, actually sit down. So we'd have a session after having made up all the stuff, all the music on the spot. We'd actually go back and like, okay, what can we do with this song? And I, I pushed him in directions he never went, and I'd actually made up a few of those lines and things that sort of say, well, you can do that. He said, no, you can't possibly. Do that you know that's wrong and say like, give it a go try it try it because 
you know, and, and it worked, and it worked really well. And um, so, um, yeah, there's a song there on the, with banjo on it, and that, that he sang a banjo line to me, <laughs> and I attempted to play it, and that's how we got it. So it's, um, you know, it's, um, it was just we've got this stuff in it, but it's very different to what Ron writes, and it's very different to what I write normally. Mm-hmm. So it's just uh, another. Another, it's like if you with an artist with different tools, they use different things, and suddenly they got they're producing different work. It's like that, right? Right. That seems to be a bit of a theme with uh, with your work is going for a, going for something, and then it ends up just kind of being its own thing anyway, and it coming out sounding yeah. very much like something new. Well, I'm I'm really a believer in getting out of your comfort zone too, and not just thinking this is what I do. And that's what right. I you know, what I'm saying to Ron with, with the lyrics. No, you can do that. Uh-huh. I think because once you've expanded your comfort zone and gone somewhere, you become comfortable with it, and that is does become what you do. So I'm very much thinking it's about exploring new territory. Is something as banal an idea as that? Right. That I, that's I'm very much into that. Always have been, and um, that's sort of what's happened with the Darling Downs. Cool. Well, why don't we listen to that? Let's listen to In That Jar by the Darling Downs. Ciao! 
that thing I'm saying softer than sound Here's that happy blowing gone round Just take what you need and just follow it up This cold won't catch it It's captured in that jar You just heard the Darling Downs within that jar, and we are coming to the end of our show here. Uh, we have Kim Salmon here, who uh, has been with us uh, for the, the duration of the show, taking us through uh, a lot of great songs from his discography. And uh, I thought we'd close today, we'd end the set with a song off the New Scientist record, Moth Eaten Velvet, which is a, a song that I uh, am really particularly drawn to on the record. Um, I think that it's, uh, you can hear elements of a lot of different, different aspects of things that you've done in your career in that song. Uh, and I was wondering if you had some, some words about that one in particular. Yeah, I think um, this, there's a, if there's a theme in this um, talk, is about, it's all about how, the way the music's made is very much part of it. It's very formalistic and... Uh, yeah. So I, I come from, I guess, because I come from an art background that I, uh, music's always been art for me. I've always, that's what it's been. I, I actually was art, at art school and I dropped out after a year and um, it was supposed to be a gap year. And I thought, right. And You're I, still uh, on your gap year. I got hijacked by punk rock. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, so, you know, I've been doing punk rock ever since then, but that has become my art really is, is is that's so it's really exploring um ideas in in the way i would if it was if it was a, a visual artist which i'm doing now anyway i'm back to right. doing visual art so um and very happy because that's what the pandemic did for me what could i do and right. i'm very happy about that too um but um so moth eaten velvet well you know how we um the scientists toured um we came up your way and we um so Emmett Kelly took us around, he, he did a, a, a West Coast tour and then the next year he did an East Coast tour with us. And then he said, look, guys, you've got to do, you know, you're really going to, to get you to the next level, you're going to need something. And we'd been saying, no, we're not doing it. I hate it when when old bands do latter-day albums. It doesn't work. It's shit. They're always shit, you know. It just mm -hmm. it doesn't work. And we got, you know, gradually Larry teased a, a couple of singles out of us and one of the singles turned into pretty much an album as that's that thing with the formula uh -huh. <laughs> and they were really cases of us doing making records via the internet mm -hmm. and they were probably me making records really um i'd get together with leanne and boris and um tony had sent his bit over but I, i'd write the stuff and there was a couple of songs one one where tony i said i had a I had a riff for the Beasts album, the last Beasts album, that, that, that whole other story, but I had this riff 
And I thought, can you write this one, but different, <laughs> and send it back to me? <laughs> and that's, um, oh, um, oh, what, what, I can't even remember the names of the songs on the album, but um, anyway, it's, um, I, I, that, that, so that, that, that was kind of written via the internet, but in um, touring, I think, I know Tony was very much, you know, thinking, oh yeah, this is, it'd be good if we could actually write together, which we sort of, we didn't really ever used to write together. To be honest, I used to write all the stuff and Tony would occasionally add something or right. maybe Boris would have some idea and then I'd build it into a song, but it was mostly my, I was, I was the writer in the band of that thing, but um, it's just the way it was. It was sort of like, they were the characters that I had to write scripts for really. They were, right. Yeah. They were, they were like the material and I was like, wasn't, I wasn't really one of the band actually. It was sort of like, I was a little bit outside. I didn't, I wish I could have been, I was a bit something else. Yeah. But, um, but um, so it was like me and the three stooges there, you know, it was a bit that's what can I write about them today? And, um, but it's sort of, dynamic changes but definitely the chemistry of that band is still somehow there with leanne has taken over from brett and it, it wouldn't work with another drummer it just wouldn't work so but leanne doesn't actually jam so she's sort of you know not really a muso but uh -huh. she, nobody else could do the job it's just right you know, she's gotten very good at doing that being the drummer and the scientist mm -hmm. so um but so uh, we, we'd sort of jam things so what the method we ended up with would be i i taught myself some drums and i'd jam away until i got a beat that was i figured was a, sci a good scientist beat that maybe we could hang something off of uh -huh. i'd send it over to tony and say come up with a riff for that would you so that's how we made the bulk of this album it was like um you know and one of the beats, he, he said, well, here's something. Um, he was sort of, he called it Moth Eaten Velvet because he thought that he'd written something that was just a bit of a pastiche of the Velvet Underground. Uh -huh. And what he'd written was sort of like, um, it was like the Velvet, a pastiche of the Velvet Underground and the Jesus and Mary chain. Mm -hmm. Which was, it was a nice sounding thing. And I listened to it and I thought, I like the melody that those guitars are doing. I'm going to work with that. Uh -huh. I'll throw the rest out and um, I just, you know, keep the chords that he's got, but he, he had a whole lot of riffs, but rather than use them as a guitar line, I use them as a melody line. Mm -hmm. And I just thought Moth Eaten Velvet's a pretty good title. I can work with that. It's a great title. Yeah. And uh, I sort of thought, I did a few, there's a few little musical tricks there because it goes from major to minor, but it's done with a bass playing kind of like um, just two fifth chords, you know, E and A, I think it is. And, um, but um, there's a minor chord in there and I'll get Tony to imply it with his slide guitar and, um, and I sing as though it goes from a major to a minor. It's like on the, I'm going to talk tech music, but I go from, when we go to the fourth, I sort of go from a major fourth to a minor fourth. Or mm. and then, yeah, so that's what I, that's what happens. And I mean, it's a real little, almost nothing thing, but it's those sort of little nuances that, as with the drum beat, that kind of make a band 
give it its identity and yeah so um it was really just that i was just thought well this is a sad time really we're definitely in the post phase of the band but we're kind of making this album and i just thought about making a song that kind of had that sadness to it and um thought moth eaten goblet was a perfect vehicle for it and just about having friends and it's a sad song i feel a bit sad singing it <laughs> and talking sure. about it but um, yeah, so um, yeah, that's that's how that song came about. It was just like, uh, and um, you know, the band really. The, as for all of um, negativity, it's it's probably out of all of the scientists albums. It really is the band composition album because right. I wrote the drum parts, but Leanne and Boris knocked them into shape because uh -huh. they could come down from. Uh, Sydney and um, you know hang out for a week and we'd go and practice them and they'd sort of well we need to do it this way or this is how, you know what I mean they had to sort mm -hmm. of put it together and assemble it so that it worked for them right and it'd be so so it was a strange thing of maybe you know I'm writing the drum parts <laughs> it's sort of like karma from the originally the the drummer was writing the lyrics <laughs> right yeah, now you're paying it back. Yeah, but right. it's, it was a different drummer and everything, but it's still the same thing. It's in scientists. Nobody writes what they should do. It was, you know, I wasn't allowed to play guitar in the, in the Invaders. It's just everybody right. doing something what, not what they're supposed to be doing. Right. So um, that's sort of what happened on that album. But, yeah, we were sort of like a lot of it is really just me sending a beat over thinking, oh, that's pretty cool. Um but it's very much like the band. You, when we had recorded it, mm -hmm. we were just getting an award for um, um, in Perth. We were getting um, uh, what was it? It was we were, the Hall of Fame. We were in the WA Music Hall of Fame. And uh, congratulations! Yeah, thank you. And we recorded our album. It was at the end of 2019 before any pandemic. Even though the songs sound like they were written in a pandemic, they right. Were, and and sort of forecasting that pandemic. Well, yep. You ask uh, the scientists. Ask the scientists. They'll tell you. Right. And uh, recording it remotely is sort of what you got to do now. Well, we didn't actually record this remotely because we were in Perth. You we just did, composed we, things. Yeah. I see. Yeah, that's right. We did initially the the, the our, our earlier stuff was done remotely. But this was oh, very much we we're in the. We were in the room together. We really, you can hear it. You can actually hear I, a band. I was surprised that when I thought you had said it remotely, I, that was a surprise to me. So it makes sense that that's not true, that you were in the room. No, together. this is really mm -hmm. like, um, this is the band. Have you been doing much uh, much uh, remote recording, remote collaboration during the pandemic? Uh, I kind of put music on hold, aside from what I've told you about. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not great with... Um, what do you call it? Um, digital works, digital audio workstations, or whatever they're called. Um, even though yeah. it should be, I'm too slack. I, I'm, I've, I've sort of gone back to doing visual art, so it's better, you know. And I'm not really worried about it. I just thought music's going to be too hard. You know, it's going to be frustrating. So I thought, nah. and I don't really. It, it's I, I, I'm all about the performance of music, so. 
piecing it together bit by bit it's not really that much fun to me uh, there's nothing wrong with it and i admire people yeah. that can do it, but that's not really what um gets me off with music i i, I like what happens in the moment and the fact that it happens differently every time and I like being having a more situationalist approach to music. It's sort of rather than this is it and it's nailed and it's all so um, so it's a it's a conversation for me. Um so um so I haven't really um done much of that no to answer your question. And and that and negativity is really sort of very much it's an album of a band in there. The ideas might have been done that way, but this is really like we were all in there, still knocking it together. And once we'd recorded, we all there was pretty much a maybe Boris didn't think so, but we all just thought, oh, science is suave. That's the one. That's the one. We played it. We actually could play it at those awards. We just thought, well, let's chuck that in. We'll do that. And and the, 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 the reaction was great. I can't wait till we finally do get to play that one live because it's a it's an absolute corker to play. And um, yeah. So, um, you know, that's um, one I'm really looking forward to if we ever get to play together again. But right. It was, really was a, a, a lot of fun. And um, it was like, wow, the band's back finally after all these years. So, mm -hmm. you know. Well, Kim, thank you so much for, for coming on and being a guest on the show. Uh, we've got uh, Scientist's Negativity out now and some uh, Kim solo stuff out, uh, out on Bandcamp. Uh, I'm not allowed to do uh, the FCC regulations. I'm not allowed to do a call to action, so I can't tell anybody to check it out. But I will say, if you do <laughs> check it out, you will enjoy it. <laughs> and that's not an order. <laughs> and no, just if you decide. It's a forecast. It's yeah, a forecast. Right. In your own free will, if you decide to check it out, I don't think that, I doubt you'll be disappointed. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Kim. Uh, and Thanks this has been. This has been Jack Hobbick for Celebrity Telethon, and uh, I'll be back next week, same time as always. I hope everyone has a safe and fun weekend. Well, everybody donate what it is you're after. <laughs>
child I'm not asking you To live them out again I only want a friend I'm telling you I only want a friend Thank you.